Over the last couple of years, um, I've been reflecting on myself a little bit, and I think that's part of what happens as you grow older, kind of maybe the, the beauty of growing old, the benefit of aging. And I've been trying to, to understand the narrative that plays in my head, that informs me, the mindset I carry around, uh, that I live out of, why I do what I do, why I act the way I act, why I think the way I think. We all, you know this, most of us don't think about it, but we're all living out of some narrative that plays through our heads. Some of us learn that narrative from our parents, right? The I just want to be happy narrative. Our parents have taught us that that's the ultimate goal, and, and our kids hear us say that, and so they tend to live out of that narrative. And while most of us, those of us that are parents, have meant it for good, and it can drive good actions, a lot of times it drives poor decisions and, and roller coaster emotions. If I'm not happy, well, something's got to be wrong. I've got to fix it. Something has to be changed. It might be a career. It might be my body. It might be my mate. But my happiness is number one. That's my narrative. I live out of that narrative. Therefore, I make all of my decisions predicated on what I believe to be true of the world, that my happiness is number one. Uh, these narratives are everywhere. If you're, if you're a woman, you know culturally, societally, right? Y your value has often been communicated to you that, that it lies almost exclusively in your beauty. For men, it's oftentimes in our strength or our success. That's the narrative we live out, right? My value is predicated on, on how strong I am or, or, or how much money I have. It's, it's not just decisions that get driven by that narrative that we live out, right? It's our emotions, it's our sense of self-worth and our value. I'm overweight, therefore I'm, I'm ugly and, and I've, I'm of little value. I'm not the CEO, I'm an, an hourly employee, and so I'm just, I'm a, I'm a failure. I, I, I can't, I don't belong here. No one would want me. All of those narratives are probably worth exploring. Uh, I would encourage you to think about the narratives that you're living out this morning, right? But this morning, we're going to look at what I think might be the most common human narrative, incrementally true, by the way, in the United States. We're going to look at the narrative that Jesus warned over and over and over about, this shared mindset that all of us are, this filter, in a sense, that we run every life experience through, one that Jesus did not have, a mindset and a narrative which Jesus invites us out of. One that is so prevalent and common in the kingdoms of this world, but totally foreign to this kingdom Jesus is establishing. And he, he wants you to come into, not just in the life to come, but today, a brand new way of thinking and seeing the world. We're in this series where we're asking ourselves, what if Jesus was serious? And we're asking that question in light of Jesus' most famous teachings, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus is showing over and over again, there are two different ways to live out this life. One leads to life, and the other ultimately to death. And they, and they look very similar on the outside. What differentiates them is actually usually only seen by God. It's the heart. This morning we're, we're going to see two mindsets, two, two narratives that exist, and what flows out of them. So let's pick back up in this sermon as it was recorded by Matthew, Jesus' most unlikely disciple, as he wrote down this most unlikely sermon. 
Here's what Jesus said. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Interesting, right? It's kind of a question. How great is that darkness? Jesus, right before this, where we ended last week, if you, if you were with us, Jesus had just said, listen, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store them up in heaven. He concluded by saying, remember, where your treasure is, where, whatever you're working for, whatever you value, that's where your heart's going to be. And then Jesus says this seemingly incongruent message about how we see things, like just seems to come out of nowhere. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. The eye is the lamp of the body. What's he talking about? Well, in one level, what he's saying is, is simple, right? And in another, it's deeply, deeply provocative. There's light in this room today, right? And if your eyes work, it takes the light in. You, you will be, by, by the light in the room, able to move your body through the room. You'll see where the aisle is. You won't stumble and trip and fall on your way out. All this is saying is, at one level, is if your eye isn't working, even though there's light around the rest of your body, your whole body, even though there's light around it, is in a sense in the darkness. If your eye's not working, right, there's a sense in which no other part of your body can see or take the light in. So if your eye's not working, your whole body's in the darkness. Whether or not the room is flooded with light, I want you to get that. This is what Jesus is trying to say. The whole world could actually be one way, but because you're not seeing it correctly, right? The whole world could be flooded with this light, but because your eyes aren't set to see it correctly, you walk around in the darkness, stumbling and falling all of the time. Do you see what he's setting up here? It's about a worldview. It's about the way you see things. And while that message might in initially seem incongruent with his topic in, in the sermon at this point, he had been talking about storing up treasure in heaven. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus uses the same illustration about an eye. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is dark, your whole body is dark. There he's also talking about money again. There's something about the way you see things and what it has to do with, with money. It's connected. When you get into Luke 12, after he talks about the eye and the lamp, he says... So watch out for greed. And he gives a very famous parable. If you've been around the church, you know it. it's the parable of the rich fool. Jesus tells them, a ground of a certain man yield an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I don't have any place to store all of my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear, tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones because that's where I'll store all of my surplus grain. And then I'll say to myself, you've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink and be merry. And if you know this story, you know Jesus warns that the man's a fool because that night he died. He stored up for himself the treasures of this world, but he was not generous towards God or others. Same teaching. There's something about the way you see things and what it causes you to do. Don't store up treasures. Don't be a fool. Make sure you're seeing the world correctly. Because if you don't, you'll live out of the wrong narrative of your life. And so now back to what Matthew heard Jesus saying. Jesus says, after this teaching on the eye, make sure you're seeing the world correctly. There is light all around you, but you could be in the darkness if you don't see it. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So again, next verse, right? It's after this warning about the way you see things, Jesus is saying the way you see things will determine what it is you hate and what it is you love. The way you see the world will determine what you love and what you hate. And a word I really think underlies what he's getting at is the way you see the world will determine for you what it is that you're devoted to, what you devote yourself to, where your devotions will lie. And then he lays out two choices. The way we see things, church is so important, the way we see things will determine who you serve. Implication being everybody serves somebody. Don't miss the implication. Everybody serves something or somebody. You're either going to serve God, or that word for money there that, that, that's translated money in the Greek, it actually had a broader connotation. Um, it meant your stuff. You're either going to serve, depending on how you see the world work, you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve your stuff. And he goes on, he goes, therefore I'm telling you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink or about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Just want to pause on that for a moment because there's a super interesting point I don't want to rush by. Jesus is tying together two pretty, pretty big issues here. I've been reflecting on this the last few days. The things that we worry about, Jesus ties together. The things that we worry about, think about what you worry about. You don't have to shout it out. I just want you to think about what you worry about, okay? The things that you worry about, he ties together with the things that you're devoted to. In other words, what you worry about tends to reveal what it is that you're devoted to what it is that you tend to be in love with is usually the thing that you worry the most over. And, and I'm not gonna break any new ground here. Most of us know this. But in America, by far, what do we worry the most about? Anybody? How did you all know? In America, according to a brand new uh, survey, it just came out last month, May, by Capital One and the Decision Lab. More than three in four Americans, 77%, nearly 80% of us, report feeling anxious about their financial situation. And in this survey of over 2,000 people, or excuse me, again, in this secular survey, over 2,000 years since Jesus preached this sermon, 58% of us, almost 60% of all Americans, say that their finances control their lives. We worry about money, and 60% of us report that it controls us. We serve it. I mean, even if you're here this morning and you're not sure you're a follower of Jesus, you would have to stop and go, huh? This guy nailed that 2,000 years ago. And, and for some context, right, Jesus is speaking here to people who really did worry about food and clothing. They, they, they were not rich people. I mean, let's be honest. When is the last time somebody in this room worried about food or clothing? Personally, I have never in my life ever, ever worried about food or clothing. Not one time have I ever said to myself, and I understand I'm blessed, okay? 
I've never sat around and said, you know what? I wonder where I'm going to get my next meal from. What's fascinating, though, is, especially here in America, it turns out that getting more stuff doesn't mean worrying less. It's actually interesting, right? Here's the crazy thing. We live in the wealthiest nation at the wealthiest point in its history, in the history of the entire world. We have, as a people, more than anybody ever that's lived has ever had. And do you know what we also do more than anybody who has ever lived? Worry. Here's an actual headline, I read it this week, quote, Worldwide stress levels have reached a new record, so has worldwide wealth, by the way. Worldwide stress levels have reached a new record with the U.S. leading with some of the highest rates in the world. This is fascinating stuff. I'd encourage you to go read it. It's not, this is, this is secular studies. But getting more stuff does not mean worrying less. Getting more stuff, it actually turns out, is proven to increase your worries, not to decrease them. Our stuff, when we are devoted to it, is a terrible master. And that's why Jesus says, that's why he asks, is, it, is this the way you want to live? Isn't your life worth more than this? Is this what you want to make your life about? Living out of that narrative? Isn't it got to be? It's got to be about more than the accumulation of things. Is that what you want to give your life to? And, and even if you are, right, I'm so worried, I'm so worried. What are you worried about? I'm worried that I won't have enough. Well, so, so what am I going to do? So I'm going to get more, I'm going to pile up so I can make sure I have enough. But now what are you worried about? I'm worried that I might lose everything I piled up. So what do you do? Jesus goes on with a recommended solution. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or, or reap or store away in barns. There's that concept again of piling things up for the third time. The concept of worrying about not having enough for tomorrow. So I'm going to live and worry about tomorrow, and, and I'm not going to be present today. I'm not going to enjoy today. I'm not going to be grateful for today or thankful. I'm not going to be present in any moments because I'm always thinking about and worrying about tomorrow. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. And, and then another in this series of questions. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And I know this actually, I think when Jesus asked it, this was a rhetorical question. I think sometimes today we wonder, some of, uh, some of you treat your dogs better than I treated my children. <laughs> Seriously, I've walked through the airports this week and I've seen people with more, more expensive strollers for their dogs than I had for my children. I remember one time I went to, to the pet store and I, I, I made the mistake of deciding I was going to buy some, some dog food in the pet store. And I, I know, I know. I can feel the emails coming, but I, I said to the guy, I'm looking for some, some kibble, and he gave me a dirty look. I said, what do you mean? What, what, do you have dog food? And he says, yeah. He goes, but we only carry super premium brands of food. And I said, dude, I don't eat super premium brands of food. I don't feed super premium brands of food to my children. Why would I be giving them to my dog, right? The biblical narrative, while dogs and birds are valuable, this is not to say they don't have value or worth, the biblical narrative is this, in all of creation, and in fact I'll show you this in a minute, in all of creation, there is only one thing made in the image of God, animated by the very breath of God, 
and it's you. Nothing has ever lived that is more important than you. And look at how God provides for the birds of the air. Consider it, Jesus says. Look at them. Look at the way they live. Look at the way, think of how how they operate. Daily, free of worry, just believing that there is enough. They live that way, and, and do you realize how much more valuable you are than the birds of the air? Don't you think that God would, would provide for you? And here comes another question. It's a sermon, but this part is actually just lots of questions. Can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life, implication, since you can't, why do you worry? That's like a real question. I started wrestling with it this week. Why do I worry? Like, what, what good does it do me? Why do I allow, in fact, I could list all of the harms it does. I checked out the, the math on this. There's actually studies. 90% of the things we worry about never happened. 90% of them. You lose sleep. You devote your lives to these things. It's all air. It's all fabrication. It's all lies. Why would you live this way? Why are you doing this? You can't add one hour to your life. And if panic and worry and anxiety, if it's crippling us the way we know it is, if it causes us to make bad decision after bad decision, perhaps, perhaps we should begin to look at worry as not something natural, but actually as the enemy of life itself, of being present in a moment of gratitude, of peace, of life. Back to Jesus, he said, and why do you worry about clothes? Another question, seriously, why do you worry about having something to wear? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Again, aren't you more valuable? These are questions of value. Aren't you more valuable than the grass of the field? You are an eternal spirit. Grass is here today and gone tomorrow. And yet God, look what God does. And then he does something quite profound. He ties together two other concepts. He ties together worry and faith. He says you worry because you have a faith problem. Actually, you have two faith problems. The first is that you have too great a faith in your stuff. You just keep piling it up, storing it up in barns. You actually have have plenty, but your worries tend to grow with your stuff. You have too big a faith in your stuff and too little of a faith in what the world around you understands. The birds do, the flowers do, that God is in charge. You cannot add one day, one moment to your life by all the worry you put into it. God is in control. Worry is actually ruining your life. It is not benefiting you. So why do you do it? What if instead of worrying, what if instead of going, I have to have more for fear of what tomorrow could bring, what if instead you just breathe? I said, I actually trust that God will take care of me. Can't you see the guy next to you in the cube next to you? (laughs) What are you, a fool? 
So Jesus goes on. So don't worry. Don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, people who don't know God, don't believe in God, they don't trust in him. The guy in the cube laughing at you next door, right? They run after all of those things. They seek after those things. This is what is common in the world today, that, that, that most people are just devoted to those things. When you're worried about them all the time, you know what you're acting like, don't you? You're acting like an atheist. You're acting just like somebody who doesn't even believe in God. In fact, apply this to what was said earlier. If you want to let your light shine, right? Jesus earlier in this sermon said, let your light shine before men. When it comes about to things to worry about, in light of the same shared circumstances with the guy in the cube next to me, shouldn't followers of Jesus, when it comes to these things, shouldn't we look so very different? Shouldn't we almost be laughable? Shouldn't we stand out by the fact that we don't worry? By our peace? And then he gives us a why. He goes, your heavenly father knows that you need them. Don't you see, this is what separates followers of Jesus from, from, from everybody else. We don't believe that the world is just random, that we're just some cosmic goo floating precariously on some, some coagulated space dust. We don't believe that we're accidents of chance. We don't believe that, you know, oh, well, there might be a God. Maybe, maybe I'm an agnostic. There might be a God, but he's unknowable. Here's what Jesus would tell us. He would say, no. You have a father, and he loves you like his children. And so when, when Jesus, when he, when, he, when he talks about worry, he's like, why are you living like you don't have a dad? Stop, stop, listen, stop living like an abandoned orphan. You're not on your own. You know that, right? You're not on your own. You're a beloved son, a beloved daughter. Live like that. I, some of you know, I, in fact, you maybe saw me with her this morning. Landry, I have this new granddaughter, right? And it's fun to watch her eat. She's one year old, right? And, you know, we're doing all the messy photo pictures and ice cream and pasta and all that stuff, right? What if all of a sudden, as Landry starts getting a couple years older, when Ryan's not looking, she starts taking some green beans and putting them in her pocket? <laughs> right? Starts going, well... You know, Landry, you want some ice cream? Uh, no, but then she goes and she, you know, she got a fridge for herself under a bed and she's starting to tuck the ice cream away, right? What message would that send to Ryan? You don't trust me, Landry, do you? I mean, you start to see this runs through the entirety of the biblical narrative. It's the arc of scripture. This is the, the prodigal son. I would like my stuff right now, Dad, so I can control things. I'd like to put, I'd like to put what, what you could give me tomorrow, I would like it today so I can have it for tomorrow, so I can control things. Landry is piling up green beans in her pocket, and it's getting her more scared and not less. Do you sense that? Jesus concludes. He goes, look, seek first the kingdom, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
Be devoted first to the kingdom of God. Love first, not your own kingdom, not your own ways. Reprioritize the way you think. Be devoted first to God, not your stuff. And then all of these things will be given to you. Therefore, because you are sons and daughters, do not worry about tomorrow. This is why children live with such reckless abandon, right? Like they know they got a dad. Landry's not walking around in fear that she's not going to eat. She just lives free. And Landry enjoys today more than almost any of us. When's the last time you enjoyed today? Every day is a new adventure, baby. That's the way she lives, right? Almost. Have you ever... I like it. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Have you ever noticed but, uh, that, that you've never worried about today? You ever go, oh, I'm really worried about today? You're not worried about today. You're living in today. You're almost always worried about tomorrow, right? And God's trying to teach his sons and his daughters since the dawn of creation. Don't do that. I didn't create you to live that way. Live, darn it. Live. What are you doing? Jesus has this way of seeing things. He has eyes that informed him of a world of a truth that you and I don't see. We're surrounded by it. It's everywhere, and somehow we don't see it. Jesus understands the world his father created, that he lived it and enjoyed day by incredible day. A world that Jesus understood, a world that he trusted in, that is all around us. Jesus saw it. Almost none of us do. And it has to do with actually this huge theme that goes throughout the arc of Scripture. I talked to you about it a few years ago. It's such a big deal in the story of God and his people. We should probably do an entire series on it. But it has to do with seeing the world through the eyes, okay, how you see the world, through the eyes of either plenty or scarcity. Psychologists call it scarcity versus an abundance mindset. And what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago is being confirmed continually, study after study. The way you see the world, and almost all of us see it with eyes of scarcity versus eyes of abundance, will change your life. It will actually give you life. I've come that they might have life. The concept of seeing the biblical narrative through the lens of scarcity versus abundance most famously was treated by a theologian named Walter Brueggemann in a paper entitled, I like this, The Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity. He points out that the Bible starts out with a liturgy of abundance. This is how Jesus lived. This is what he understood. Genesis 1 is this song of praise for God's generosity. It, it tells us how, the, how well the world was ordered. Now the Lord God had planted, in a guard, uh, planted a garden. Just think about that, a garden in, in, in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees. You ever notice that? Not one tree. All kinds of trees. Not one variety, not, not many of one kind, all kinds of varieties of all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and trees that were good for food. Some of the trees he made just because they were beautiful, just so you would enjoy them. And he made trees that bore all kinds of fruit. You know, there wasn't just apples in the garden, right? All kinds of fruit was available. And God keeps going, oh, it's good, it's good, it's very good. He declares that 
Genesis declares that God blesses. He endows it all with vitality, the plants and the animal and the fish and the birds and humankind. And God blesses them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. In an overflow of fruitfulness, everything in its kind is to multiply the overflowing goodness that pours forth from the Father, from his heart, from his creator's spirit. And as you know, the creation ends in Sabbath. God is so overrun with fruitfulness, it's almost like he goes, you know what, i got to take a break from all of this. I, I, I'm going to take the day, I'm going to take a day out of the office. In fact, you should check this out when you go home. If you go to Psalm 104, the entire psalm is just a song about the abundance of God and all of creation. It, it's a commentary on Genesis 1. The psalmist, I encourage you to read it, it's too long to put up, but the psalmist surveys creation and he names all of the things. He, he goes through the heavens and the earth, the waters and springs and streams and trees and birds and goats and wine and oil and bread and people and even lions. It goes on for, for, for 23 verses and it ends with the 24th, which, which is his expression of awe and praise for God and God's creation. Listen to verse 27 and 28. They're almost like a prayer. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. Psalm ends with, with God as this great respirator. It says, if you give your breath, the world will live. If, if you ever stop breathing, the world will die. But the psalm makes clear that you have no need to worry. God is utterly, utterly reliable. The fruitfulness of this world is, is, is guaranteed. Later in Genesis, post-fall, God blesses Abraham and Sarah and their family. He, he tells them to go and be a blessing, to bless the people of all nations. Blessing is this force of well-being active in the world. And faith is the awareness that creation, faith, ye of little faith, remember? Faith is the awareness that creation is the gift that keeps on giving. And the awareness of this concept of God the Father that provides dominates Genesis until the 47th chapter. And in that chapter, Pharaoh of Egypt has a dream that there's going to be a famine in the land. And so Pharaoh gets organized to administer, control, and monopolize the food supply. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth, 20% of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming up and store the grain. There it is again. See it again? There it is again. The rich fool principle, the build bigger barns, the store up for tomorrow treasure. And then how about this? Under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. Under whose authority? This is not God's kingdom. This is not God in control, but it's Pharaoh's kingdom under his control. He's the authority, or so every rich fool thinks. According to Brueggemann, Pharaoh introduces the principle of scarcity into the world economy. For the first time in the Bible, somebody says, there's not enough, let's get everything. Martin Niemöller, the German pastor who heroically opposed Hitler, was a young man, and he was part of a delegation of leaders of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. He, he was called to meet with Hitler in 1933. He stood at the back of the room, and he looked, and he listened, didn't say anything. And when he went home, his wife asked him what he had learned that day. Niemöller replied, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Do you see what this does to us? 
because Pharaoh, like Hitler after him, is afraid there isn't enough good things to go around, so I have to have them all. Because he's fearful, he's ruthless. Pharaoh hires Joseph to manage the monopoly. When the crops fail and the peasants run out of food, they come to Joseph. And on behalf of Pharaoh, Joseph says, what's your collateral? And so, listen to this now. And so, they give up, they give up their, their land for food, and then the next year they give up their cattle. By the third year of the famine, they have no collateral but themselves. And that's how the children of Israel become slaves, through an economic transaction. You, like Jesus, have been warned. You will always, you have to serve, you're always serving someone, God or your stuff. Some of you know the Exodus story, the promise of the creation story. It operates even, even there in the land of Egypt, even there while Israel's in captivity. The people just keep multiplying. By the end of Exodus, Pharaoh, by the end of the first chapter, he decides that they become so numerous, he doesn't want to have any more Hebrew babies to have to worry about. So he attempts to have all the newborn boys killed, but his plan fails. And, and the Hebrews, they just keep multiplying. By the end of Exodus, he... Pharaoh has become so, so mean and brutal and ugly. That's what the myth of scarcity tends to do. He becomes so exasperated by his inability to control the people of Israel, he actually calls Moses in and he goes, take your people and go. Which would have been a wonderful story about the power of scarcity thinking versus abundance, except no sooner than the people uh, go, the people of God go, they hit the desert, then you know what they start to do? Look back to Egypt. Why? Because they got scared. What'd they get scared for? Food and clothes. The story is actually at the heart of Jesus' culture. Everybody knew this story. This is what is, is behind this teaching of Jesus. He's equating them with a story they all know that is both an ancient story but a modern fear. Their worry makes them long for slavery. You sense that today? It makes them want to willingly be subjected to the worst possibilities in their lives. Brueggemann writes, in answer to the people's fears and complaints, something extraordinary happens. God's love comes trickling down in the form of bread. They say, man who, Hebrew for what is this? And the word manna is born. They had never received bread as a free gift that they couldn't control or predict or plan for or own. The meaning of this strange narrative is that the gifts of life are indeed given by a generous God. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. It's an embarrassment. It's, it's irrational. But God's abundance transcends what the market economy could ever do. Three things happened to this bread in Exodus 16. First, everybody had enough. But because Israel had learned to believe in scarcity, you know what they started to do? They started to hoard it. You know what? Mm, I know it shows up every day, but just to be on the safe side. And they started building bigger barns, right? But when they tried to bank it or invest it, it would just rot. Because you cannot store up God's generosity for tomorrow. Finally, Moses said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do what God did in Genesis. We ought to have a Sabbath. Sabbath means that there's enough bread. We don't have to hustle every day of our lives. You know, there's no record that Pharaoh ever took a day off. Because people who think their lives consist of struggling to get more and more can never slow down because they won't ever have enough. 
When the people of Israel cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, the manna stops coming. They're going to have to grow their own food, and very soon they suffer a terrible defeat in a battle. And, and Joshua, their new leader, conducts an investigation to find out, well, what happened? Why did we lose this war? And, and he traces their, their defeat to a man called Achan who stole the spoils of the battle and withheld them from the community for himself. Possessing land, property, wealth, it makes people covetous. The Bible warns us over and over again, we who are now the richest nation on earth are in many ways its main coveters. We never have enough. We have to have more and more. This insatiable desire, it does not cure our worry. It perpetuates it. Whether liberal or conservative, right, you've got to confess the central problem in our lives is we're torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that turns us greedy and mean and unneighborly, and we spend our lives trying to, to sort out the ambiguity. We sort of spend our lives trying to figure out who we can trust, our stuff or God. In fact, there's, there's a saying, it's been around the church, it comes from the Old Testament book of Joshua. I didn't know that this week it pertained to this same topic. God says to the people through Joshua, he goes, he says it to you this morning. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. He says, look, don't you see what I've done as your dad for you? And he challenges them with that same challenge that Jesus challenged the people in that, on that mount with, the same challenge that you and I have to deal with today. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped, the ones that, that you tried to use to quell your fears, your fears of scarcity. Theirs were, were made of wood and hay and bronze. Ours tend to be savings and successes. Throw them away and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you because everybody's got to serve somebody, don't they? Then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve. You cannot serve God in money. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Did you know that most famous verse is a verse about scarcity versus abundance? Who are you going to serve? You cannot serve two masters. It's everywhere in Scripture. Jesus gives the warning over and over to the rich fool Stop building bigger barns. To, to the rich young ruler, sell all of your stuff and come and follow me. Jesus lived differently. He saw a world full of abundance and a father that could be trusted, where his disciples saw thousands of hungry people, right? All these people were gathering and they were hungry. And, and the disciples saw, saw only a little bread and a couple of fish. And you know what the disciples said? Jesus, send them home. And you know what Jesus said? Feed them. When the woman took the jar of very expensive perfume and broke it and poured it on Jesus, do you remember what the disciples said? What a waste. Do you remember what Jesus said? She's done something beautiful. Don't you see what this is doing to us? Can you sense it? Do you understand what your worries are doing to you? Why are you so afraid? Because your, your fears will reveal what you are most devoted to. When my daughter used to run track, she still runs track, she's been hurt a lot, but she used to always write on her arm, always more. And I never knew what that meant, and she told me it was the story of a runner. 
And, and here's the story behind it. It says, over the years, I've kept every pair of running shoes that I've ever had. I spray paint them red, and I write notes on and in them, and I say a prayer, and I throw them on the telephone wires near places significant to my life. It's become my way of letting go of a certain season in my life and embracing a new one. And on the bottom of every pair, I write, always more. These words represent the way I strive to live based on my motives for living that way. These words are always ringing in my ears or written on my hand as my life reminder. They remind me that this present world and everything in it is passing away, and yet there is always more to look forward to in the new heavens. How do you do this? You embrace that truth. There will always be more. You have a good, good father. You don't need always more. See the world through the lens of abundance and not scarcity. Jesus says the kingdom is now. The party has begun. Stop hoarding the green beans. Practically, this week, go and be generous. Do something. I was out this week at council in Washington. I was having dinner by myself, just sitting at the, the restaurant bar, and I went to go to leave, and the guy goes, that guy at the end of the bar that was sitting down there, he paid your bill. I said, what? Yeah, he just paid it. Trust the host. Do something crazy. Empty out your barns a little bit. Where your heart goes, where your money goes, your heart's going to go. Make a commitment to change where your heart is. Give somebody some credit. Relinquish a little bit of fame. There's enough to go around. Tell your kids how great your spouse is. Give them a speech about it. Tell your boss how great your coworker is. Here's how Paul summed up the concept. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or could even imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Stand and sing with me.